Thank you very much, Elspeth. Um, yeah, um, so I have my kind of disclaimer I've got to put in at the start is I am an artist, I'm not an academic, so I'm not coming at this with sort of a critical approach, a kind of uh, a way of engaging with these subjects. In a sense, I'm kind of, um, I suppose people like me who are making creative work around these subjects, I, I hope the way we sort of stumble around in the dark, um, Almost like those old films. You know those films where you'd see people kind of trying to steal jewels and they have to avoid these rays which will, these lasers will set off the alarms. I feel a bit like that. And when I do stumble into something or set a light off, hopefully that kind of event is what it will inform and feeds all the kind of critical work that the likes of you are all doing as, as academics. I'm, I'm going to talk about... Um, the CIA prison work, the secret prison work, um, but it's kind of drawn from a number of bodies' work I've made across the years and shown in various forms as books or publications, uh, exhibitions in museums in different forms, such as the Imperial War Museum or um, International Centre of Photography in New York. Um, I mean, my work is about, it's, it's about terror and it's about anti-terror. Uh, it's about measures taken to counter the ideas and the, the pervasive influence of terror and how those two come together to make us all terrified. Um, it's about representation and it's about denial and obfuscation. And these, these are kind of, it was really interesting hearing the two talks before because the phrases, the the imagery of things which really resonate with some of the stuff I've seen and, and experienced myself. It's all to do with access and control and fear um, and, as we heard from the, from the last one, kind of conspiracy and cock-up at the same time. Um, I don't think a lot of these forms of control and obfuscation are always deliberate. Um, I mean, what I've tried to do with my work is, in a sense, to show how what I'm doing is touched by or shaped by forms of control and censorship and access and how that, um, you know, by bumping up against those forms in the dark of what I'm trying to see, um, making that part of the process actually starts to reveal something about the natures of the, the structures of control and the forms of secrecy which are going on behind it. And I suppose, I mean, ultimately, a lot of my work is about kind of demystifying, trying to demystify or de-exoticise um, how some of, how these subjects are seen, represented, understood, engaged with by as wide an audience as possible. So um, I'm not working in an academic context, an academic environment. I'm making work which will be seen by public in museums, on websites, through publications. I'm kind of reaching as wide an audience and trying to bring what are, at one level, exotic subjects, subjects which feel like they're a long way away, exotic subjects which maybe people don't feel are relevant to them in their everyday lives. I'm trying to bring these subjects to an everyday level to show how all our lives are affected by notions of terror. All our lives are affected by the controls, the measures which our governments are introducing to protect us from 
ideas of terror and how these obviously come together. Um, so I've done work on, around Guantanamo Bay where, you know, messages of the worst of the worst picked up on the battlefields of Afghanistan kind of merge with representations where you are not allowed to show anyone's faces in Guantanamo and how this kind of starts to come together in a kind of visual message of threat and fear that these people are so terrible that you can't even see them as human beings and how that then plays and relates into the idea that they don't even deserve any form of legal representation. Um, so there I've kind of tried to, in a sense, reconfigure, re-represent notions of uh, humanity in re regard to, to Guantanamo by looking at notions of personal space, by looking at where people who have been held there are living once they've been released back into the, their homes in the United Kingdom or places in the Middle East and elsewhere in Europe. Um, and exploring these through a kind of a process, a narrative which is um, disjointed. Well, I don't tell you what you're looking at. You have to kind of start to make connections yourselves as to what it is in terms of meaning uh, or place. And in a sense, that's about trying to say something about disorientation. Um, you know, as I spent time with people who've been held in Guantanamo, they started to reveal that they had been picked up not in Afghanistan but in Pakistan or even in Gambia and that their lawyers were telling me they were bought for $5,000 because that's kind of the bounty money which was being paid and how trying to represent this through this disjointed narrative is saying something about what was the key technique of the purpose of being held at Guantanamo which was about disorientation and becoming dependent on your interrogator and compliant. Um, looking at new images um, which are to do with the bureaucracy of control, um, the, the way in which detainee, detainee mail at Guantanamo was handled and redacted and scanned. So these are kind of new images created by a process of bureaucracy and control and cover-up um, redaction at Guantanamo. Uh, I've done work in the UK around control orders. Um, Terrorism suspects or people who are suspected of some form of involvement with terrorist-related activity who are held under a form of detention based on secret evidence, uh, who will never have a, and never did have, any sort of proper legal process where this evidence was seen in court. Their lawyers never got to see it. Their lawyers, they, the, the people who are held, the controlled persons who have no name, uh, who are controlled by control order officers who have no name in the Home Office are engaged in this process where what happens, what, why people are held, the evidence on which that is based is never seen, is never tried in a court of law, which effectively overturns kind of 800 years of the principle of habeas corpus, which is that the state cannot detain you without giving you a due legal process and revealing why you are being held. Um, so Britain, in a sense, this is Britain's Guantanamo, and what happened is that people were made to live in houses, relocated to live in places where no one's supposed to know they're there. And I was given access, I don't really still know why, but I was given access, but the ac that access was strictly controlled. The work I made was not, should not reveal the identity of the man who I was working with or the location of the house, because if it did that, then I would be subject to the possibility of prosecution. Yet there's also a sense of revelation. Everything I made had to be seen by the, the government, 
Um, so there was also the possibility of actually creating evidence while making work around this man's subject. I mean, also at Guantanamo Bay, everything you make in the prison camps has to be seen. You have to shoot digitally. You have to sit down with a security consultant at the end of the day and they will go through everything that you have produced. And if you show a security camera, if you show someone's face, if you show an unmanned watchtower, if you show the sky and the sea in the same picture, they will make you redact the picture. They will make you destroy the picture, delete the picture. So these kind of ways in which creating the imagery is um, influenced by these processes. Um, yeah, so here we have a control order house, as I say, where someone is made to live, yet we're not supposed to know he's there. Um, and he, we have this issue where he has a cat. And because the detail of control exercised over the individual extends to the terms of a tenancy agreement, so he obviously has no contract in the house that he is living in, the person who owns that house. The government employs a company to find these houses, to, and then they are clearly bugged. And people are made to live in these houses, but how they treat this kind of problematic domestic space, their relationship to that space, is one way in which they can become criminalised. So if you breach the conditions of a control order, that's how you can be taken to court. That's how you can be imprisoned. So one of the elements, one of the, the points on the, uh, the conditions of living in a home office provided residence is that you're not allowed to have a pet. So who, I mean, so on the grounds of national security, this man could have been prosecuted for having a pet. This starts to kind of touch on notions of absurdity as well as secrecy and control. Um, this is a, a four-screen projector called 198-2000, which is based on the 198 out of approximately 2,000 images which the, Ameri the ACLU in New York managed to get released. Um, images taken by the American military in their own uh, detention centres in Iraq and Afghanistan. It took over 12 years to get these 198 images released. Um, it's a process of documentation of the American military's own abuse of uh, people they have detained in these centres. Um, it's just a way of looking at how they have recorded this information, why this partial revelation has taken place, what it means that some of these images have been let go, that they have let these be seen. Is that saying that you know, they are clearly perhaps, they're quite abstract, they're also fairly benign, they don't really show anything. So does, is that saying that the, the remaining images are showing much worse, or is this saying that actually nothing particularly bad took place? <clears throat> I assume this was for some form of accountability, but it's not. No one who has been imaged in any of these pictures has had any sort of accountability for what they have been through. The images are just some form of a bureaucratic process of showing the consequences of the detention processes within American prisons. Um, so, negative publicity. Um, this is work uh, which was made in collaboration with a man called Crofton Black, Dr. Crofton Black, who at the time was a counterterrorism researcher, investigator, who was working for an organisation called Reprieve, who I've worked with quite closely in the past. That's how I met Crofton. And he was putting together sort of the paper trail um, of, of extraordinary rendition for a potentially forensic process where Reprieve could hold companies involved in that process to account. Um, I was fascinated not only by the subject as an extension of kind of looking at these uns unseen processes and experiences in relation to my other work, 
But in relation to Crofton's own research process, how we over time? We? Cool. Um, and I kind of going back to what I said about kind of being a jewel thief, stumbling around in the dark, setting off these beams. In a sense, that's how I kind of wanted to access this subject was through Crofton's experience of putting together this paper trail with events, bits of research, freedom of information requests, which would suddenly reveal something, which may, that flash of light may suddenly illuminate something over there, which may suddenly illuminate something on another side of the world, which may implicate a plane over here. And, and he actually, he talked about his research process in relation to philosophy, the guy, I think it's Maimonides, 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 who was a medieval philosopher who talked about kind of knowledge in relation to flashes of light. And in a sense, what I wanted to do with this body of work was to show that process um, through Crofton's research and how that illuminated the network of extraordinary rendition. This sort of global network of mundanity, uh, which is just connected by all these, where these mundane things are kind of charged by their connection to this global geopolitical process of extrajudicial detention and torture. Um, so a lot of the work is based on material which Crofton had collect collected, and part of this is government material. Um, so this is um, an internal CIA report into its own interrogation practices from 2004. That's the contents page. The, the redaction, the black rectangle. I mean, we've talked about kind of what happens when you redact something and how that captures people's imagination. Well, what on earth is under that black, under the black rectangles there if they're quite happy to reveal uh, mock executions? <laughs> What's going on underneath? Um, that, those are four pages from the recommendations section. Um, the material which this kind of process revealed has come from a number of different sources. This is um, a page from... Um, a court document, a narrative of a court case in upstate New York between two companies, one um, which rents out aeroplanes operating out of a small airfield in upstate New York and another company um, which organises flight schedules and there was a contract dispute about how many hours a plane was in the air and how much was paid for that plane. And this court case went ahead, and the judge is trying to establish what's the problem. What was the problem with this plane? Why did it not fly the number of hours it was supposed to fly? And the narrative of the court case starts to reveal that it was because it was carrying bad guys. And who are the bad guys? And the court stenographer hears the words theorists. But it's terrorists. Is that my thought? No. Um, so this, this document... The narrative of this document is how in the, the, the book, in a sense, kind of we let the words speak for themselves. Um, and that's where the phrase negative publicity comes from. So that's the page you see on the cover of the book where we've whited out everything except negative publicity. And in the course of this court case, the judge establishes it's to do with terrorism, it's to do with extrajudicial detention and torture of individuals, and he says, irrelevant. That is irrelevant to the case. This is about a contract dispute. So this revelation of these companies' involvement in extrajudicial, knowledgeable involvement in extrajudicial detention and torture is revealed, it's declared inadmissible, unimportant, not relevant. And the court case proceeds on the basis of 
um, the contract dispute. But that contract dispute revealed a lot of information. This is one of the ways, this is one of the flashes of light which started to reveal things like invoices, uh, which listed flight destinations. So planes were in certain places at certain times, allegedly. As it turns out, some of these were false destinations. Uh, but people like Crofton could start to analyse this data. He could start to build up data which started to create a sense of who was where at what time. Uh, billing reconciliations, which again start to tell you information about planes, airfields, companies. So you can start, you, and then you start to know who has been held where, potentially. Eventually, um, the American government did its own research into this. The, the Senate Intelligence Committee carried out an extensive research uh, program into the CIA uh, secret prison program and the extraordinary rendition process. Only the summary of that research was, process was ever released. And that summary could only be released after it had been redacted by the CIA. Now, who else is going to redact it? Obviously, the CIA would be the people to redact it. But the notion of that redaction is kind of really interesting. Again, it's that partial revelation, which is part cock-up and part conspiracy, and also incredibly creative, because it captures your imagination. So this is one of the pages where they list uh, who has officially been held in the CIA secret prison program. Um, but you know, what they've redacted is the first part of the date, or the last digit of the number of days that someone has been detained. What's the point? Why? What's that telling us? Well, for someone like Crofton, that was really useful, because then he can start to work out if someone's been held there, we know for a period of time, but potentially they're saying that's the number of days, then maybe he was over here on this plane at a different time. But this whole nature of how uh, what is released by the state, and what's the redacted state? So in the exhibition in New York, the, the, the very start, you saw this kind of big cube. That big cube is the whole of the Senate Intelligence Committee redacted um, summary, which goes all the way around, and within which the 198-2000 projection was taking place, kind of within the redacted state, this second set of images of this partial revelation of state abuse took place. Um, this is a redacted uh, cable which talks about the, um, the deletion, the destruction of videos which supposedly were made. Uh, this relates to Abu Zubaydah, who's still in Guantanamo Bay, the man who was waterboarded, I think it was 187 times. Um, so uh, those were all videoed. And here we have, this is actually a cable which we think was produced by the woman who's now the head of the CIA. Uh, revealing that she had witnessed the destruction of all those videotapes about the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah. <coughs> Letters of convenience requesting permission to overfly uh, national territory, national space. We've got about 20 of these. Um, they're all signed in the name of Terry A. Hogan, but I think every signature is different. And obviously, Terry A. Hogan doesn't exist. So this is the government, American government, producing its own documentation in the name of people who don't exist, and it's signed in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Um, getting closer to home, um, Britain. Uh, this is a letter. <coughs> um, oh, I can't remember the guy's surname now. God, that's frustrating. Anyway, senior uh, operative in MI6. Um, Mark, writing to his friend Musa, 
uh, that being Musa Kusa, who was the head of intelligence for Colonel Gaddafi. Uh, Dear Musa, uh, signed your friend Mark. Um, it's about British complicity in the abduction and rendition of individuals to Libya to be interrogated and tortured on our behalf. So this is about Britain knowingly, this is evidence of Britain's involvement in this process. Um, yet this guy has never been prosecuted. It went as far as uh, the criminal prosecution um, body looking at it, but it was decided there wasn't enough evidence to actually prosecute him of knowledgeable involvement in interrogation and torture. Um, an email. Talk about complicity. Uh, talking about notions of who knows what. Um, a very simple email between um, two different companies. Uh, sorry the client cancelled the flight for the 5th and the 25th. Uh, just curious, do you think it has anything to do with all the media attention? Well, absolutely not. It's just an itinerary change for the passengers. Smiley face. What do we know? When you start, I mean, this, does this person know who the passengers are? This is like your next door neighbour. Do they know what's in the plane? Who's in the, who, the, who is the passenger in the plane? Um, photographically, how do you respond to that? How do you make work about something you can't see? How can you make images which, which reveal that which can't be revealed? There's kind of no point, really. And my initial idea was I didn't actually want to make any images at all. I mean, my background is as a photographer, um, but what, what's the point? You know, the camera as a documentary tool can reveal nothing. It can say nothing. But eventually I did go to one location. I went to um, a black site, a former CI black site in Lithuania, and made some images around that village, around this very, very small hamlet, about 40 minutes outside the Lithuanian capital in, in the forest. Uh, within which a former riding school uh, was turned into a black site. The paddock behind the riding school, one day people turned up with building equipment, speaking a strange language, and this white barn was created. That's where Abu Zubaydah was waterboarded. That kind of location. So I started to make work just going to look at the outside of these places. In a sense, I started to see a sort of a visual relationship between the strikeout and the black rectangle and the fact you cannot see anything in the photographs. The photographs are about the facade. They are about the imagination of what's going on behind. But they're also about the everyday. So in, a, in, a, you know, in the way that the, the paperwork is incredibly banal, it's, it's an invoice. It's a printed email exchange. There's nothing exotic there. It's extremely mundane. It's about people going about their business, making a dollar. But that business is to do with something that is geopolitical, is global, which is the war on terror. Um, this is another CIA black site. It's, the, um, it's in Romania. It is the Romanian office for, um, I think it's National Statistics and Secrets. Um, this was the site of a, likely to have been um, a place known as the Salt Pit, which was the CIA's main um, interrogation centre in Afghanistan, just north of Kabul, but we don't know. It's not there anymore. This landscape 
when it was actually happening. And this location has kind of worked out. Various people have done it. Trevor Paglin's done some work around this. Washington Post did some work based on trying to talk to people who have been held there, how long it took to get from landing points to where they were held. They kind of established it was somewhere in this area. When that was happening, that landscape was desert. There was one place, which was a former brick factory. <coughs> and now the landscape itself has been redacted. The landscape itself is covered up. Um, that is the headquarters of CSC, which was one of the main logistics companies in Washington, who was sort of the first, the first point on the chain of, of command. Okay. Um, Richmore Aviation, one of the companies involved in the court case, Sports Flight International. Um, the other company involved in that process where someone works from home. Um, a swimming pool in a five-star hotel in... Spain, where we were able to work out that the flight crews would stop off for their kind of rest and recuperation, have three, four days staying in this five-star hotel in Mallorca. An image which I've redacted myself. This is the house where one of the pilots lives. Uh, so one of the people flying the passengers around the world. Um, I was able to find out where some of these men lived and went to photograph their houses. I had no intention of revealing their identity or revealing the location of where these houses are. But under British law, not American law, funnily enough, but under British law, this person has a reasonable right of security and privacy in their own home. So even though I might publish this photograph unredacted, not identifying anything about the occupant or even what the house is, the fact it would be in this book, this this pilot would have the possible right to take me to court and to have all the books destroyed. So I redacted that image, but make that reason for redaction part of the narrative of why it is redacted. So it's part of what you understand as you experience the book. Um, and so on. And the book itself is a process of revelation and investigation. So you are not told what you're looking at initially, but each image, each document, which is reproduced at its actual size, comes with a series of numbers, which are page references. And as you make that journey through the book, connecting an invoice to a plane, to a location, to a building in Washington, you start to build up a pattern of connections which reveal individuals caught up in this process, planes that were used, companies that were running it. And that is how you start to kind of reconstruct this network yourself, this kind of globalised process. Just to end very quickly, um, uh, yeah, I worked with some men <coughs> who had been held in CIA secret prisons photographing where they live. Um, E.L. Weisman from Forensic Architecture contributed a kind of an afterword to the book. Um, he talked about the strikeout and the black rectangle uh, and this notion of negative evidence. And again, this is something which has come up already, the idea that the evidence of something being covered up is itself something which reveals something to us. And he, he, he talked about kind of different... Uh, he talked about the material infrastructure of the secret, and he kind of came up with five forms of that. And I've just very, very quickly paraphrased some of these. One is, is in relation to the, the person who is detained. Uh, where that notion of secrecy of you don't know who, where you are, what's going on. And these black sites were all designed to be the same. So you had no idea if you were in Lithuania or Romania or Poland or wherever. You were disorientated. Um, the people involved in that process, the, the, the people who are not 
And he's not talking this about the CIA, who worked for the CIA, but people who like sports flight international, like Richmore Aviation, their involvement in this process, to what extent their partial knowledge protects them from really knowing the full extent of what's going on. Um, it protects us. The notion that, you know, in a sense you could say the moment Dick Cheney, I think it was, said, we are going to work the dark side. We all know. We know what's been going on. That partial revelation that, that the government of America and our own government was going to play dirty was done for public relations purposes. So we know what's going on. We know that we're doing this. Um, as a form of deterrence and control, that for the most of the population, the, the kind of the... And here he was talking specifically about kind of the disappearances in Argentina. The disappearance of an individual has an effect which runs through the rest of society. And then, in a more sort of Deleuzean way, the notion that we start to police ourselves. This is, this is post-script society of control. We, you know, how often have you sat there typing out a search thing in your search engine, you're talking about terrorism or torture, and you go, or Islamic terrorism? You know, who's researched ISIS videos? Who's worried when they've typed in anything to do with that <coughs> that someone's going to be watching? Someone's going to be keeping track of what you're writing in your search engine. Does that affect you? Um, and I could go on, but that's it, I think. Great. Thank you. Thank you.